This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome to Car Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello again, all of you Car Stuff head gaskets. This is Kurt Guerin coming to you from the sidecar of the out-of-control Car Stuff motorcycle as we careen down the highway of life. Ben is to my left behind the handlebars at full throttle, and I suspect he is out of his mind on coffee. And me, well, here I sit, leather helmet and goggles firmly affixed to my noggin, face forward facing the onslaught of the chilly mid-fall air, completely unable to influence what this madman next to me is about to do. But hey... What can you do? Welcome to another wild ride here in the land of car stuff. Ben, can you hear me over there? Yes, Kurt, I can hear you. Thank you again for having me back on the air, although I am not 100% on board with that uh, description of me (laughs) as an unhinged, coffee-fueled lunatic. I cannot object to its accuracy. We had a lot of conversations off-air, you and I, uh, didn't we, after our previous episode on the cars of Breaking Bad? Well, yes, we did. Uh, We talked about, let's see, we... We we really took some pot shots at the poor old Pontiac Aztec uh, in particular, but during that exploration, you and I started talking about some cars we love uh, and some cars we hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, long-time Car Stuff listeners uh, will recall my... Um, very, very complicated hate-hate relationship uh, with a particular minivan known as the Honda Odyssey. You mm-hmm. and I have talked about yes. this. Did yes. we talk about this on air last time? I don't think we were on air when we were talking about it. And since then, I had one negative experience with an Odyssey, and it may be in line with some of yours, but please continue. No, no, please. Come with, come with me. <laughs> well, you know, it was just... Uh, it was one of those road situations where mm-hmm. you're just trying to make some progress and there's this one person that doesn't want you to. So, <laughs> and they just happen to be in a Honda Odyssey. You know what happened? The words out. They know that you and I work together now. I'm yeah. telling you, there's a vast and insidious conspiracy. I, you, you know, jokes aside, I want to thank everybody over the years who has sent me wonderful email about... Uh, wonderful Facebook messages, tweets, and so on about the Honda Odyssey, about minivans in general. And uh, there's a very weird commercial 
uh, that uh, some of your coworkers and I filmed a while back about minivans. I've got to send you, or maybe we can post it on Car Stuff's Facebook page too. Uh, but with that being said, jokes aside, here's the beef with Honda Odysseys. When you buy a Honda, now this is a true story, Kurt. When you buy a Honda Odyssey at a dealership, you know, you get, engine-wise, it's a pretty good vehicle, right? Spec-wise, pretty good vehicle. If you're a person who feels like there's no such thing as too many cup holders, Honda Odyssey, that's the ride for you. Uh, <laughs> but if you have a problem with the price point or something like that, the dealer takes you into a back room and they say, hey, we're going to give you a discount on this van so long as you let us install this one extra feature. And this feature recognizes when there's a guy named Ben Bolin in a Monte Carlo within about a half mile of you and it slows your vehicle down and makes sure uh like this weird autonomous system makes sure that you're directly in front of his car mm. and you know understandably people buying a honda odyssey are like well you're gonna knock 5k off the price then of course i'll do it sure so that's my beef with them yeah and they must have updated the the software on that particular yeah, piece they're too. after you yeah well what's a what's a car uh what's a car that you particularly love kurt well, uh, off the top of my head, an El Camino comes to mind. Ah, you've hit upon the topic of today's episode. Uh, so behind the scenes, uh, this is this is a weird one. Behind the scenes, when you and I were working on our previous episode on the Cars of Breaking Bad, uh, we also talked about the spinoff film to Breaking Bad that came out uh, called El Camino. And... At some point, I don't know if we ever mentioned this on air, man, but at some point we were both baffled that there had never been a Car Stuff episode on El Camino, or as we call it here in the U.S., the El Camino, which should be hilarious to anyone who speaks a lick of Spanish, because what we're saying is the, the road. You know, it's like saying ATM machine or VIN number, right? Vehicle identification number, number. Uh the El Camino, man, uh, by the way, I'm going to continue calling it the El Camino for <laughs> the entire time. Um, the, the El Camino is a fascinating vehicle. It's it's sometimes like a it's like a platypus of the road. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not quite fish. It's not quite foul. It's something different, something unique, a mixtape. And you and I have some personal stories about the El Camino, but I have the following proposition. Why don't we start with the origin story of the actual vehicle, which may surprise some people. Some 80s babies may be surprised how old this vehicle actually is. El Camino was introduced, the first generation was introduced in 1959. It was basically a response to Ford's Ranchero. Um, but even before that, in Australia, in the 30s, they created this uh, vehicle known as the Coupe Utility. So the idea of a car that had some of the attributes of a truck, um, the idea of that was around for a while before they started showing up in America. And even in the early 50s, Chevy and Ford made light-duty trucks. Mm -hmm. Like the um, Chevys made a truck called the Task Force. It was a light-duty pickup truck. But the El Camino brought in some of that 
I guess the elegant lines of the late 50s and early 60s, the chrome trim, some of the more visually appealing aspects of the sedans at the time. Yeah, you can look at some pictures of the first generation El Caminos and you can clearly see the aesthetic you're talking about here, Kurt. I do have to also confess, I have a weakness for those uh, those flowing lines, that space-age retro-futurism so common in Fords and Chevys of the 50s and into the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a previous episode on car stuff about utes in Australia mm-hmm. and, and their origin. For anybody who wants to check that out, there's a really cool quote that you found about the ute as well uh, from like the way it was marketed in Australia, right? Yeah, so um, it was a farmer's wife in Victoria, Australia, She desired a car that, quote, to go to church in on a Sunday in which to carry our pigs to market on Mondays. And so that encapsulates the entire concept here. You know what I mean? Uh, the, The idea that instead of buying two separate vehicles for two separate specific tasks, right, you can buy something that fulfills uh, both of those functions this is a question that we'll come back to, right? Because uh, what we're what we're going to see here is going to be a, ultimately a battle between some of those functions. Like, is a daily driver or your you know your good looking car, right? Your business car is that the same thing as your hauler, your work vehicle? The folks who made the Cameo Carrier and the folks who made the El Camino and the folks who made the Utes in general, their answer to that was, yes, it can be the same thing. Forward the future. What a time to be alive. You know what I mean? If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, 
free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Uh, so let's, let's dive in a little bit into the first generation of, try not to crack up when I say this, the El Camino. The, the road. It was uh, based on a station wagon that Chevrolet produced at the time. It was the Brookwood station wagon. So the first generation spanned um, two years, 1959 to 1960. And throughout the generations, by the way, the El Camino, it kind of flip-flops back and forth between car, muscle car, light utility, mm-hmm. truck, and it, it kind of has this funny quest of finding its place where it fits in in the car universe, I guess. And maybe ultimately that's why it disappeared because it was just kind of always that it sat in the middle somewhere between car and truck, obviously, but also between car that you would want to be in every day to a car that you may have had to have another car to seat maybe more than two to three people. Right. um, If you wanted to. want them riding in the bed. True, uh, which became unacceptable at some point. I know, for some reason, right? Which, you know, you and I both probably grew up in areas where it was completely normal to just hop in the back of the pickup truck, right? Yeah, sometimes, Yeah, sure. So I like that we're starting with the first generation here, and I like that you mentioned the Ranchero earlier because the El Camino, <laughs> that's the last time I'm going to laugh at saying that, the El Camino was a little edgier. It was more stylized. It was hipper than the Ranchero. And when it first came out, it sold more quickly than the Ranchero. Something along the lines of like 22,000 to 14,000. And then it also, while it was clearly based on the Brookwoods wagon, it had some different variants. You had some more options. You could get it with any full-size Chevy drivetrain. It had a single trim level. And then we can dive into the the stats a little bit. Let's look at the price point. So the 1960 model, next model year, still has that, that kind of classic, or what would come to be classic, Bel Air look, right, mm-hmm. of the 1959. But how much, how much did it cost? The starting price was around $2,366, and that was with the six-cylinder engine. You could also get a V8 for around 100 bucks more, which was a 283-cubic-inch engine. So let's do, let's do just a little bit of inflation calculator math. You ready? <laughs> All right, let's see. Let me, get a, let me get a drum roll here. $2,366 in 1960 is equivalent to about $20,071.58 in 2018. So $20,000 functionally. That's nothing to sneeze at. That's definitely an investment, especially when you consider that these weren't super practical for a lot of people in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, for sure, especially around the time the baby boomer generation. So you had larger nuclear families after World War II. Right. And we, you needed space for the kids. And you, you know, one thing you told me that I thought was very interesting was you said when I look at the first generation El Camino, I'm also kind of seeing the story about 
the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It seems like you, know, you step back and you look at the El Camino throughout the generations, it directly reflects um, the time that it was produced. And that kind of sounds obvious. If you look at any car through mm-hmm. any generation, you could say that. However, the uniqueness of the El Camino being a car truck um, kind of <laughs> makes it, it's just interesting to see what the manufacturer made the El Camino. It's like, do we make it more like a car? Do we make it more like a truck? Do we make it a muscle car? Right. Um, do we make it an economy car? So in general, the general look of the car, the general feel of the car, you can tell where the industry was at at the time. And that is uh, kind of neat about the El Camino for sure. Right. And we're looking at this hybridization, right? Again, two separate vehicle concepts smooshed together into one thing. You could make an argument here that the El Camino has always been a little more car than it is truck, right? I would say so. It's strange because the the big truck parts or truck uh, aspects, attributes, for lack of a better word, of the El Camino are going to be the bed and the fact that it's a two-seater. Those are the defining traits. Uh, and most of the other stuff, all car. By way of contrast, we can look at another attempt of compromise, something that is incredibly prevalent in modern pickup trucks today, which is the extended cab. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of we're coming toward the same thing from a very different direction. Since this is an audio podcast, I want everybody listening to know that what I'm doing is staring off into the middle distance, completely out of my mind and caffeine, gesticulating wildly with my two hands about to like slap together because the extended cab pickup is is trying to also function as a family vehicle. And in some cases, Mm -hmm. it's doing it successfully. You can comfortably seat a family of four to five in an extended cab, right, depending on the make, model, et cetera. Uh, With the El Camino, there's not an extended cab. It's just the two seats and the pickup. But like you said, and I love this idea, man, like you said, we can conduct a um, a bit of forensic work based on the way that the El Camino evolves or has changed with successive generations, we can also see the way American culture is changing, or at least car manufacturers' perception of American car cultures. There was a gap, first of all, between Mm. the first and second generation of a couple years. However, when the Ranchero continued success in the two-year absence, so the Chevys said, well, okay, well, let's take another stab at it. So they began to base the El Camino on the Chevelle. It definitely has a scaled-back appearance, as the Chevelle did at the time. The Chevelle is a smaller muscle car-type vehicle. So Chevy began to make a car that was leaning in that direction. So leaning away from luxury headed towards performance, but Mm. not quite there yet. We've got this interesting thing here because now we're moving from two unrelated functions, right? Family, daily driver, work vehicle, hauler. Uh, We're moving from two unrelated functions toward two functions that are arguably oppositional, a high-performance vehicle is built to avoid weight. Right. And a hauling vehicle is built to move with as much weight as reasonably possible. So this is one of the areas where we see the contradiction of design in the El Camino 
come to the forefront is in the second gen. However, do want to point out, they still look very cool. They do. Yeah. As far as weight and weight distribution, it is interesting to have a, a muscle car with little weight on the rear wheels. Yeah. You know, so, but I guess you could put some weight Sand back there if you it. wanted to. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, in 1964, when the second generation was introduced, um, it was initially introduced with six-cylinder engine. But very soon after that, they were throwing V8s in there. I think the 327 mm-hmm. cubic inch was mm-hmm. a V8 engine. Yep, yep. 350 horsepower. So not slack there. So throughout the years, 64 till the second generation ended in 1967, they dramatically increased power and and function to get towards the, the third generation. They changed the, the dashboard layout to horizontal speedometer, which was becoming popular at the time. I remember when growing up, I was driving some of my older relatives, older cars that had the horizontal speedometer. Mm-hmm. The thing that freaked me out is maybe just the illusion or the spatial reasoning involved. I started thinking less in terms of the numbers mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> and more in terms of where this thing is mm-hmm. right and uh like where the indicator is and that's a terrible way to think about driving because i'm like well as long as it's you know as long as it's not all the way to the right we're fine mm-hmm. we're not really <laughs> speeding we're only speeding if it's laying down completely flat on the right don't try that at home kids and the culmination of the the generation in 67 they introduced the collapsible steering column. Disc brakes were now an option. They included an automatic transmission as an option. And uh, they also introduced rear air shocks, which um, would raise and lower the rear end. We're in this plus, minus, plus, you know, pro com pro kind of situation here. Collapsible steering column, great. Disc brakes, thank God. Also, you know, I hope this is not a, a hot take, but having an automatic on a muscle car, I don't feel like that's the right move, especially considering that's a 1967 automatic. The El Camino at this point is a muscle car that has the handicap of a pickup bed. Now I'll say it, because that's what it is. If you think of a muscle car mission, it has a handicap. Uh, the the center cannot hold. This is an unsustainable situation. Uh, and they, I don't know. It's interesting because we see from the second generation on that the El Camino ha- does have its own evolution, but it's also following the Chevelle's evolution. A change in the Chevelle affects a change in the El Camino. Mm-hmm. And this holds true for the third generation, right? Yeah, so third generation ranged from 1968 to 1972. And yeah, the design changed along with the Chevelle options, paralleled the Chevelle's options over the years. This one will be familiar. I mean, this is when, this is the muscle car generation. Yeah. These are the years of the muscle car El Camino right here. So the second generation was kind of walking us up Mm. up to this point. Society was changing. The baby boomer children of the early 50s were starting to drive, and this is what they wanted. (laughs) And they look mean, too. I like it. This particular generation of El Camino and Chevelle very beautiful cars. Mm-hmm. Um, the body style did change between the 1969 and 70 year. Oddly enough, it's the same generation. <laughs> uh, I, I, there's To me, there's a big difference between those two. Even when we're talking Chevelle, the, the 70 Chevelle, that was the year, man. That was like yeah. the year that had the gigantic engine in it. 
Um, that's four, the 350 four, V8, right? Well, it's a 454. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because 350 V8 was 1969. Yeah. Yeah. So they bumped it up 454, 450 horsepower. This is the very end of that muscle car, unrestricted. No worries about gas mileage, none of that garbage. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. We're just going to see if we well, how big of an engine we can put in the car, and then we're just going to put it in there. Yeah, so it's it a beautiful thing. But rewinding back to 68 a little bit, so the El Camino was based on the four-door Chevelle station wagon slash sedan. It was bigger yet lighter than the previous generation, which if you were to look at it, it would be hard to believe that. We also know that this was, 68 was the year the Supersport was launched, right? Supersport version? Yeah, so that was a 396 mm-hmm. cubic inch El Camino SS. One thing interesting that you pointed out to me here is that there was a noticeable engineering problem or design problem with the 69 model. <laughs> yeah, so they put the backup lights, they moved them from the rear bumper up to the bed. So if the tailgate was down, you couldn't see the backup lights. You know, wait, maybe it was on purpose. Maybe they were like, you know what you really need when you're reversing this car? You need to be kind of a wild card. People need to not know where you're going and what you're doing. <laughs> exactly. Is he going forward, backward? Who knows? Yeah. You know, he, keep life interesting. Exactly. Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. And of course, when you're driving uh, the SS version, you would want to leave that tailgate down. Because if you left it up, I, I believe the airflow might be a little bit restricted. Yeah, it's like that, uh, what do the kids call it? The Naruto run? You heard of that <laughs> <No>. one? <laughs> That's how, it's some thing on the internet where, where people are saying that if you run with your arms pointed out behind you, uh. you run faster. I haven't checked into the science, you know, I'm not... Mm, yeah, I'm not gonna buy. I'm not buying that. Yeah, Just I'm from not. a mechanical standpoint, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it would, it would be the best way to run. But um, yeah, further research is necessary, though. There we go. And when we get to 1970, the El Camino, it's, it's bittersweet, right? Because yeah. this is, I think we can both agree, this is the apex moment. This is the highest performing El Camino, at least maybe not in terms of sales, but in terms of its on-the-road ability. Abilities. It has some drawbacks, depending on where you put the tailgate. No one knows if you're going to go forward or backward. Uh, and also, it's officially a muscle car. It hits all, it ticks the boxes of a muscle car, mm-hmm. but it's a muscle car that happens to have a pickup truck right. on, its, on its butt. Right. Right. Yeah. So what happened that stopped this clear trend? Because if we're being honest, we see from 1964 all the way up to 1970, uh, we see this clear trend toward building more performance into the front end. Mm -hmm. It's becoming more and more muscle car, also, you know, kind of following the market at the time, but it still has this pickup truck bed that's becoming more and more of a legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like an interesting novelty attached to the El Camino. So there's something that happens right around 1970. What you're getting at would be Fuel regulations, yes. lower octane fuel, mm-hmm. a more fuel economy centric mindset in the United States. I don't think the gas crisis had fully kicked in yet, but the writing was on the wall. The car was changing forever. Yeah. And um, American car companies were about to jump on the bandwagon or get left behind. This was it. This was the end of the, the muscle car as we know it. So in, or as we knew it. Yeah, as we knew it. Yeah. So in 71, 
uh, lower octane unleaded fuel mandates are in effect. And this means that the El Caminos from 71 on start using lower compression engines, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, we see, oddly enough, despite these mandates, we see that uh, the GMC Spirit is introduced this year. Which is GMC's counterpart to the El Camino. And, you know, other than those regulations, not too much, like, fundamental... uh, There aren't too many fundamental shifts in design or in specs until we get to... The fourth generation, which I know a lot of us listening have been waiting for. The fourth generation was from 1973 to 1977. So 1973 saw a dramatic redesign of the El Camino. It still was based on the Chevelle station Mm -hmm. wagon, and it was the largest El Camino to this point ever produced. Uh, Probably the largest El Camino ever produced, because I believe the next generation is a little smaller. Yeah. Front discs are now also standard in 73. So, Ben, why in particular... Do you say that this generation is special in terms of our story here? This version of the El Camino is one that I think a lot of people growing up or our age are probably familiar with. This is also, I've got some personal bias here, Kurt, because this is also the first El Camino that I had experience with, and that was a 19... I want to say it was a I want to say it was a 76 with the quad headlights. My father had gotten into a very serious argument with a guy that he was getting this El Camino from. And the argument which was with a coworker of his went this way. The coworker said, "Let me just give this to you. Just take it out of my yard. My wife is so pissed." that this thing is sitting here, it takes like, you know, it takes like a quart of oil to get it anywhere. It's in bad shape. It's what we, <laughs> it's a huge POS. Since we're a family show, that means piece of stuff <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or piece of stink, whatever you want to call it. And so on the other side of this, my dad, the old man is like, uh, it's like, no, I can't do that. We have to have the title. There has to be an exchange of money. I want to give you at least a hundred bucks. And so after they had this this drag out argument of just take it, <laughs> I'll feel bad. I will just let me give you some money. This became like our work vehicle for uh, taking care of the yard, moving stuff around. And this thing was in my in my mind because very old when we got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing was in my mind our. Flintstones car because the shotgun seat had a hole in the undercarriage that had plywood over it. And I kept trying to convince my dad to let me move the plywood to let you know how old I was at the time so that I could do the Flintstones. (laughs) By which, yes, it is as dumb an idea as it sounds today. The idea was, I was like, I'm going to put my feet through it and I'm going to run along with the car. (laughs) Um, The reason I still have feet today is because, thank God, there was an adult around (laughs) to convince me uh, they took a very, my parents took a very interesting tack with this. They said they didn't try to convince me that I couldn't do it or tell me that I couldn't do it. They did tell me, obviously, but they didn't try to convince me that that itself was a bad idea because of the physics involved. Instead, they convinced me, the first off, they told me they would, you know, uh, from the era of corporal punishment. So they, they make 
made it clear there would be consequences if I tried to do this. And then they also got my head, man, and they convinced me that the Flintstones was a crappy cartoon. (laughs) No. And by doing that, you know, they made it uncool Uh for us to do this. But this thing had a drinking problem, but with oil. And uh, it it was one of those things where we thought, you know, forget blue book value. Because whenever you're fixing a used car, you always want to compare it to the value of the vehicle, right? Yeah, right. And this thing was scrap metal that happened to be held together by duct tape wire, some prayers to a higher power. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually, uh, my dad ended up giving it away, but I will always remember that 76 El Camino because I was certain I was a kid at the time, but I was certain that when I got to be 16 years old, this would be the car I was going to drive. And I thought I was going to be like hot, stuff you know yeah, at the man. high school parking lot yeah uh, but you had you also had some experience uh growing up with el caminos right i did i did i want to rewind though for yeah. a second and ask you if there's a story as to why that hole was in the floorboard on the passenger side you know it was clearly not an intentionally made hole it looked kind of like rusted. So rust had gotten to it that quick. Well, I, you know what? I don't know. I don't know the story of the Flintstone shotgun hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) You know what? How about this? I will check and get back to everybody on that because the weirdest things seem normal when you're a Mm -hmm, kid and looking back in my, in my thirties, I'm thinking, yeah, it's, it's unusual for a car to have a hole in the undercarriage like that. Well, did did y'all drive it around other than from here to there around the house? Did y'all drive it out to the store and Yeah, like maybe maybe around the block in the community okay. in the neighborhood. To so the, it wasn't really like a the daily drive depot or something. Yeah, no, 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 no. Very much like you would haul sod in it and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I feel like those types of cars people used to have those types of cars. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And not many people ha- retain a car now just to kind of do you know the, what I mean yeah, like the, the car with the hole car. in the floor you know <laughs> right right they, the beater yeah the beater yeah, yeah. They, so the era of the beater is kind of over this is an interesting thing that you bring up and it touches on a larger concept here um, you're right a lot of people just have a daily driver now right yeah uh, and I think part of that is because we know that the entry level price for a new car don't ever buy a brand new car by the way <laughs> we know the entry level price for a newer car uh, just the sedan not even a bunch of bells and whistles uh, that price seems to continually rise mm-hmm. you know and maybe part of it is that we also see more people living in cities so they're living with less land mm-hmm. I think I would like to think that the death of the beater has been, uh, the news of the death of the beater, to quote Mark Twain, has been greatly exaggerated. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because in rural areas, in the countryside and stuff, you still need a vehicle like that. You know what I mean? You still have to go off the road. You have to go into a field. Or you have to haul uh, some messy, heavy stuff. And what what are you going to do? You're going to take the nice car? Are you going to screw up the nice car? That's how I always think of it. Uh, I don't have a beater right now, 
Uh, wait, no, wait, no, that's not true. I do have a beater. It's my daily driver. <laughs> it's my Monte Carlo. Yeah. Um, so my personal story yeah. it has to do with the next generation. So we're looking at the fifth generation. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So yeah. the 1978 to 1987. Now it's based on the Malibu, mm-hmm. or at least in the early part of this generation, it was based on the Malibu. This is the one that I think of when I think of El Camino. My grandfather pretty much exclusively drove this. We used to do a lot of fishing. Okay. So this was perfect for carrying all that gear and mm. going out into the on the tight dirt roads. And now this one is based on the Malibu, correct? Back to the the start of this generation in 1978, uh, the El Camino had its own unique chassis for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't based off of the actual undercarriage of any particular car. Uh, you can kind of tell by looking at it, it's, it's a different stature. It doesn't seem like a car stature. Yeah, yeah. So this is where we see this fifth generation based on uh, the Chevy Malibu for a while. It's generally based on the GM G platform or the G body. And the day of the muscle car El Camino is long gone by this point, right? And now people are focusing more on economy of fuel. Right. And when and when we say people here, we mean car manufacturers. We don't necessarily mean drivers because anybody wanted a muscular El Camino is holding on to it for dear life, right? Speaking of fuel, um, from 82 to 84, a diesel engine was included uh, in, yeah. uh, in the El Camino. It was an Oldsmobile engine. I believe it became known for reliability issues. However, it did have some signs of life back to towards the muscle car, towards the SS. Even though this generation of El Camino was based on the Malibu, mm-hmm. there were SS models made by Choo Choo Customs. Yeah. So they were commissioned by Chevrolet to make these cars. Choo Choo Customs was based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the El Caminos that they produced had more of a Monte Carlo front end. Um, a lot of people may be familiar with this, but it technically is the same body, same generation as the Malibu-based El Camino. just kind of has a different nose clip mm-hmm. on it. There were no performance modifications. This was purely a visual aesthetic upgrades, but very iconic-looking vehicles. It made for a nice-looking El Camino. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. 
Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. On the way to the El Camino's demise, there were a lot of pitches, internal and external, for ideas of resurrecting or reinventing the El Camino. And that makes sense because since uh, its first generation, the El Camino has continually been kind of reinvented Mm -hmm. as people try to figure out, should this be more truck? Should this be more car? Can we put these two things together in an effective way? So the end of the El Camino era in 87. Um, Shortly before that, production was moved to Mexico, so the writing was on the wall there. In the early 80s, the S10 was -hmm. introduced, so it was filling that small truck category. Mm -hmm. Then fast forward to the 90s when when some of these concepts started showing up, uh, the SUV was starting to creep in to the picture then. Ford had the Bronco, and Chevy had the Blazer, and GMC had the Jimmy, (laughs) and those cars evolved. And really, the manufacturers haven't looked back since then. Yeah, you're right. Uh, You're right. Before the demise of the El Camino, and even after uh, it went to Mexico to die, (laughs) Uh, like Ambrose Pierce, even before that occurred, GM in particular kept kept reworking ideas for possible resurrections of the El Camino, new iterations thereof, and so on. In 1992, they unveiled this concept car, El Camino. Uh, It was more or less a pickup version of the Chevy Lumina, You can imagine how ugly it looked. Just take a second to imagine that, folks. Yes, correct. You win the prize. It was just as ugly as you imagine. There was a Pontiac G8 ST concept that they showed at the 2008 New York Auto Show. I'm going to show you this one, Kurt. What do you think? Just initial reactions. It's pretty ugly. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's, it's Aztec ugly. Yeah. Oh wow. That's our new. You know what? I propose that's our new rating system. It's something <laughs> especially ugly. It's Aztec ugly. Yeah, yeah. It's just trying. It. You know. It's the platypus problem. Mm-hmm. It's it's trying to be two different things at that point. However, I would argue that for a time during a certain period of the El Camino's rise and its fall. It did somehow, maybe not 100%, but somehow it kind of like 70 to 80% nailed what it was trying to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a secret that I would love for the El Camino to return. I think it would be cool if it was done right. I don't think we are alone in yearning for the return of at least a small pickup, light-duty pickup. Yeah. Maybe even the El Camino, but hey, we can't get too greedy here. <laughs> right, um, right. But at I'll least for a small sm- truck. It, it seems like if you want, and this goes for cars too, if you want a small truck or a small car, 
They're either comically small uh-huh. or they're way too big. If you can't reach behind you and tap on the glass, then you're not driving a small truck. If you look at things like the best small trucks for 2019, you know, you go to you go to any auto blog or uh, even Jalopnik or CarMax or whatever, you'll see that a lot of them still have extended cabs. Mm-hmm. Having an extended cab to me does not make it a small truck. Mm-hmm. We are seeing this trend, and it happened with the. Whoosh, whoosh, Mini Cooper as well. Uh, we're seeing this trend toward bigger and bigger things. There's this mission creep in the footprint of a vehicle. I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that there's something wrong with big vehicles. You need vehicles with that horsepower, with that firepower sometimes. But like you're saying, man, for anybody who wants a small pickup truck, it's a little two seater. You know, okay, maybe with that pretend middle, middle seat, seat that no one ever <laughs> wants to use. So let's just call it a two-seater. If you want one of those right now, you don't have a ton of viable alternatives. Before I was brought out of cryo sleep and returned to car stuff here, I was listening to some of the recent episodes uh, that you and Scott had done. And one thing that I think is particularly relevant to this conversation is the earlier episode about the Ford Ranger since it was out of commission from what 2011 you guys asked a really good question like will this Ranger actually be the small pickup truck people want we just pulled this up on our car stuff community Facebook page and we're seeing some pretty good conversations here Rudy M notes that the Ranger Raptor is available as a factory model and has a pretty good review of it says it's tough as nails includes all the extras Alex S says the new Ranger is too big and too expensive whatever happened to the small basic simple trucks there you go and I I think that's what they're I think that's what they're going for and you can see the conversation when uh, Alex S. continues on in the conversation, says, the new Rangers are the size the F-150 used to be. I don't want a truck that big. I just want the old Ranger size. It's just unfortunate that we don't get to decide what the automakers make. A lot of the options they include in the in the cars now, they're outdated several years after they're introduced, like the displays and things like that. Yeah. It just seems like we're steering in that direction towards more automation in cars. Yeah. And having a basic pickup truck doesn't fit into that model. I hate to say it, mm-hmm. but um, there may be a day when we're not driving our cars anymore. I hear you, man. And it's something that honestly bugs me more than a little bit because this is an ongoing dilemma I've had here. If you, okay, let's get apocalyptic real quick, right? So imagine there's something where some sort of global event occurs where there's like an EMP, right? An electromagnetic pulse Mm -hmm. disables all computers, electronic devices, what have you. Older cars past a certain age will work because they're purely mechanical devices, Mm -hmm. right? I've been looking increasingly toward getting a new car, which I hate to do. I'm probably going to keep the Monte Carlo. I'll make it a full-time beater. But uh, but I've been looking at this, and, I, you know, one thing that's disconcerting is there's this tendency or there's this increasing trend of cars being made 
such that the owner is not allowed to work on certain aspects or components of the system. Mm -hmm. And to me, that that shows us uh, that that is just one aspect of our society's increasing move away from an ownership society toward a service society. Technologies like that already, computers are becoming where you can't replace components anymore. Everything's affixed to this circuit board, basically. So, yeah, cars are going that way, too. In the design of the vehicle, they can say it performs a certain way. It gets this kind of gas mileage, and they can regulate certain components of the car just to last longer. I mean, a lot of it is for our own good. True. (laughs) But a lot of it does restrict... it restricts a lot of the things you can do, a lot of the modifications that you can do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I never thought it would be a hot take to say, I think that when you buy something, you should own it and you should be able to do what you want with it. I never in a million years thought that would be a controversial opinion, but apparently a lot of car manufacturers disagree with me. Uh, I wonder what they think about the El Camino, too. And I'm, you know, I know I'm giving, I'm I'm dragging them a little bit, but... uh, A lot of these high-level manufacturing decisions are made after extensive research. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you and I are talking about what we like, what we want as drivers, and what they're thinking about is a decision that can make or lose billions of dollars for Mm -hmm. them. You know what I mean? So they're coming at it from a different direction. Well, and also when we get nostalgic about cars, when car fans get nostalgic about cars, they tend to think of the older days as being the better days. Oh, cars are right. more beautiful. The engines were more powerful, sounded better. The mm-hmm. exhaust smells, you know. <laughs> so it, as time has gone on, though, cars have gotten a lot more fuel efficient. You can now buy a car new or a used car with very few miles on it, and you could drive it relatively maintenance-free for 150 to 200,000 miles before you would have to change, you know, before you would have to consider a major repair. As long as you do your basic maintenance, fluids, things like that, Uh you know, spark plugs and filters and all that stuff, you're good to go. And now that was, has not been the case in the past. You know, we've gotten to this point now where tolerances are just so strict that it's really making for better cars in a way, but it is also taking some of that romanticism away. I I always think of now, try to try to ask this question, which cars are we going to look at in 30, 40, 50 years and say like, man, that car is classic. I think about that too. You know, it's also a, uh, it's a function of time. You're, you're bringing up some really great points here, man, because, uh, so there were, there were other vehicles around during the reign of the Model T. Model T is widely considered a classic. It's a function of its age, and it's also a function of its prevalence, its ubiquity. There were just so many Model Ts around that you're more likely to find one in the wild. So with that in mind, maybe we would ask, let's see, what would be a, what would be a, 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 an interesting example? So the Honda Civic, right? First Honda Civic comes out in 72, and it becomes, uh, it eventually becomes the, for a number of years, the the most popular car in the United States. Like several 
decades down the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when it becomes the most popular car in the United States, it also becomes one of the most stolen vehicles in the United States because you can, you know, chop it down and you can sell the parts and there will always be someone to buy it because they, their odds of owning a Honda Civic or needing to repair one are so much higher. So, so I wonder, would a Honda Civic eventually be a classic? It's tough because now we're we're trying to think what future historians, future car buffs will will explore, mm-hmm. you know, and and what they will what they will value. Like I'm going to be honest, man. I know I keep whinging and moaning about this Monte Carlo, this this automotive albatross around my neck. But the fact of the, the fact of the matter is that uh, I am going to keep it and wait until I can get those special license plates, man, and not have <laughs> to take it to emissions ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a good look. So I'm, I'm going to at least keep that, keep that beater until it's an antique. And then, you know, I, I don't know, maybe when I'm 80, I can sell it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, car collecting in the future, you know, again, it's hard to predict, but right. like, what will that be? Will the El Camino be back eventually? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not looking good. It's not looking good for the El Camino. It's not looking good for the small truck, but we could start a small revolution here. Maybe. With maybe our car right. stuff, gearheads, yeah. and lug nuts. And gasket heads alike. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode, folks. Kurt and I would like to hear from you. First off, big question, should the El Camino be resurrected or something like it? Uh, Second question, are there any other vehicles that you would like to see back on the road? If so, what are they and why? Uh, Last question for me, at least, small pickup trucks. Not the ones being marketed as small pickup trucks today, and these are modern times, but actual small pickup trucks. Should they come back? Should they not? Why? Would you get one? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Car Stuff HSW. You can also check out every single episode of Car Stuff that Kurt, Scott, and I have ever done on our website, carstuffshow.com. And let me tell you, folks, there's a there's a ton of stuff out there. You can listen to that Ute episode we mentioned at the top uh, for free, which is my favorite number. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time with more Car Stuff goodies. Car Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done.
What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.